The master, he is calling for you. It is dying. Very well then, lead the way. You called for me. Yes, my boy. Come a bit closer. It's finally time to complete your training here in the Wizard's Tower. Master, it, it's too soon. I, I'm only a learner, a beginner. It's fine, my boy. Here, here take this. What is it? Nothing but a small metal cube. What do I do with this? <laughs> the better question is what don't you do with it? There in the palm of your hand is an RPG mainframe. Within it, all the answers to all the questions, all the realms, imaginary and real, all possibility and all memory contained somehow in that little cube. Do not underestimate it, my boy. <laughs> Master, this this is the end? The end of my training? But I thought I would learn so much more. <laughs> well, there is one final piece, my boy. One final thing I must give you. You mean the mainframe? No, no, no. That, that is your birthright. No place for me to call it a gift when it was yours from the beginning. Well, the final thing is, well, it's trust, my boy. Master, I, I don't understand. Uh, my final gift to you, my final instruction, is my trust that you will create your own knowledge, your own truth, your own purpose. I know you will do this, for your heart is true, and you have my trust. There is no higher lesson, no deeper secret, for in trust, we are our best selves. Now, take the cube, the mainframe there, and take my gift of trust go forth for I will diminish from this realm and you will see me no more hey Greetings, programs. It's uh, old uh, hankering Fernail here, your old buddy from Runamaria, coming back at you for another episode of the RPG Manfram. This is episode 57 of the podcast that was made to last. We're going to come on back, and let me just kick things off right away by throwing a big old sorry about that at everybody for the big outage here at the end of December and beginning of January. I, this The plague has come to the land of men. And for like coming on three weeks now, I've had frog voice. And who wants to make a pro a podcast with a who wants to make a frog cast with a pod voice? Uh, as you can see, my speaking capabilities have suffered during the outage. <laughs> 
But nobody wants to record podcasts and videos when you're all sounding like a frog and snorting and hooting and hollering. So I've just been waiting to feel better. And finally, the miasma is clearing. The swamp gas dissipating from the kingdom of men. Okay, whoa, getting a little strange there. Getting a little enthusiastic because finally, back on the mainframe, back here to talk about that thing that we all love so very much, our beautiful hobby. The RPG hobby, oh yeah. We're hobbyists. Hell yeah. So today's topic, like so many of the topics that I do for RPG mainframe, are elusive to me. Like I have an idea, and maybe a month later, it begins to crystallize enough. And usually that crystallization process involves the input and encounters with all of you guys and with uh, everyone out in the community at large. The little events of each week and each day. And even if, uh, you know, you don't see my my uh, ugly mug on YouTube or hear my sonorous tones on the podcast, usually I am working on some project or another uh, as some upcoming Patreon posts are going to show. Or I'm, you know, helping other people with their projects, doing art for things and stuff. So, so even though my voice may have been completely crippled, <laughs> I've been uh, right in the fight as usual. And this concept has been pecking at me. Pecking, I say. A light and nuisance pecking. And the, it's taken many forms. Now, at first, the podcast title was going to be The GM Trust Fall. So do you guys know about trust falls probably, right? It's like a, a team-building activity where you, um, you know, everybody stands behind you and then you fall backwards and they catch you. And then you're like, oh, dang, you guys got my back. That's cool. Word up. And so I was going to talk about how, you know, this trust needs to occur between a game master and players. And when it doesn't, there's nothing that you can do to make the game all that it could be. And when it is there, there's very little that you need to do to make the game all that, that could be. And, and usually the game is somewhere in between, right? The whole hobby actually is somewhere in between those two extremes. And I was going to talk about methods that you can use to try to build this trust. And, you know, they're really not gaming methods per se. They're psychological methods. And, and just to wrap up that concept before we leave it behind, because it isn't really what the podcast is about. But one idea I had was, if you see a lever in your game and you're a player, and the last time you pulled a lever that looked exactly like that one, the room filled with spiders, right? Then you're going to think as a player that, that I, you know, we're not going to pull that because we don't want the room to fill with spiders, right? And so if the encounter starts to drag on and drag on and eventually they realize, oh, we just needed to pull that lever to open the dang door and leave, that is is not going to build trust with between the GM and the players because that expectation or expectability or consistency in the world is a little bit broken. So the trust on the one hand is definitely interpersonal, but on the other hand, it's, it's also game design driven. It's also... Uh, in the details of the world, not in the, uh, the sort of the real world between GM and player. So that was where this sort of idea began. But, you know, the, the idea of the sort of the GM trusting the players in such a way and the players trusting the GM in such a way, it started to, to fade in my mind. It wasn't quite as potent a thesis with as powerful of sort of methodology behind the thinking. And so I kind of moved on a little bit. And... The next form uh, was sort of brought into creation by a guest appearance that I did on, uh, what is it, Loco Ludus? I think it's Loco, Luco, Luco Lotus is the name of his podcast. Um, 
he had me on as a guest and we talked about RPGs, you know, for an hour and a half or whatever. And just one idea that came up that I hadn't really put into words before was trust the hobbyist. And so he had asked me sort of what some of my central principles were as a publisher, as a content creator, as a sort of, you know, just a creative voice in this silly maelstrom of ideas that is our hobby. And I said, you know, hopefully people can see and appreciate that trusting the hobbyist is is a core principle of mine. And we kind of just moved through that quickly. But as the following week went by, that statement started to feel really profound to me and, and deeper than my sort of previous version of the podcast. So I was like, ooh, boy, there, there's something there. And it definitely uh, talks a little bit more to the RPG undergrounder, right? To the publisher, to the creator, than it does just to the game master. Um, I don't think that the game master is thinking to herself, trust the hobbyist. But the publisher uh, is thinking that. And, and I want to talk about why and why I care. Why maybe you should care about this topic. And that's the subject of today, episode 57 here on the RPG mainframe. Okay, so let's just jump into it. So first of all, I have kind of like three, these three sort of pylons that are guiding me along as I'm thinking about how to capture this kind of trust in my work. And these pylons come back to sort of like guiding principles as a creator. And so um, uh, just seeing more and more of the, the ICRPG community, the Runehammer community, starting to create and publish their own material is so great. I love seeing that happen. And so more and more it's on my mind, you know, to try to, um, in a clear way, help to share what's been uh, sort of guiding for me so far and maybe has contributed to some of the sort of small success that I've enjoyed. And so I have these three pylons. The first one is Bang, the one we mentioned, the name of the podcast, Trust the Hobbyist. This is all about trust. Trust the Hobbyist. And this means that as a publisher, you know or assume or believe that on the other end of your book, on the, the far end of the book where the reader is, and you never get to sit down with this reader almost. I mean, in very rare cases you do, but generally you are giving them what you've created and you don't get to be there when they read it. And in some way you're trusting that they are deep enough in this hobby that the wheels are going to be turning in their minds in a certain way right when you hit them with your concepts, okay? And that trust is going to let you deliver cleaner material. Now, as a counterpoint, when material doesn't trust the hobbyist, it assumes that you're either really new at this or don't really have a lot of your own homebrewing capability or, you know, maybe are, you know, like (laughs) sort of very, very young, you know, like seven years old, and maybe you're just so new to it that, you know, you can't just be assumed to have, you know, homebrewing, hacking, or sort of deeper knowledge about RPGs, right? That to me is a form of not trusting the hobbyist. And that might be appropriate if you're making certain kinds of materials, but for the kinds that I'm interested in, that's not interesting. I I want material that trusts me to be a hobbyist, that knows that I've already read a zillion RPGs, that I that I play a lot, that I'm deep in this. It knows that, appreciate appreciates that fact and trusts me with looser, more open concepts so that I can create rather than simply read, absorb, and execute. And so you probably see a little bit where I'm going already, which is like published adventures or world source books to me don't display a ton of trust in the hobbyist. They they tell you every truth. They give you every NPC with names and stat blocks and all this stuff. And, and 
Yeah. To me, that's here. We're going to give you every single fact you need because, you know, maybe you're not up for creating all this stuff, but not me. I take the stance that my reader is absolutely up for the challenge and is actually here for the challenge. It's what they're looking for, what they're seeking. And so this brings me to my second pylon, which is sort of, again, my duty here or my, my guiding principles. And, and all of these are kind of working toward this, this idea of, of dispelling the myth that a stat block is such an important thing in our hobby. Okay, so the first one is trusting the hobbyist. The second one is igniting imagination. This is actually a bigger priority than delivering stat blocks. It is getting the imagination moving in a way that your reader is psyched to do their own thing, not to do your thing, but to, to be themselves. What you're doing is amping them up for their project. You aren't saying, behold the creativity of my project. You're saying, hey, look, here's some cool ideas and some starting points and some jump offs. And they're well thought out and very clean and tidy. Now take them and go explode on your own. And this is why I think that shorter, tighter material is almost always more appealing to me. Because I'm not the type to read something as written and then just do what I'm told. <laughs> I have too much of a pill for that. I want to create on my own. I want to do my own stuff. I want to take it my own direction and stat it and design it in a mechanical way that fits the kinds of games that I play and the kinds of players that I like to hang out with, right? I don't want to do what's on the page. I want to create it for myself. So my second big pylon is igniting the imagination. That's like a, a fundamental duty if you're going to dispel the sort of what I'm calling this sort of myth of the stat block, the myth of the value of the stat block. And then the third one is what I like to call sweeping the steps. And sweeping the steps is an old Buddhist term. And it, and it really is just a metaphor uh, for clearing the way for others. It, it, it's sort of this old lesson that one thing that is never a waste of time is sweeping the steps for others. It's, it, it asks nothing of others. It gives everything of yourself. And, and there's no proclamation of any kind involved. It's simply saying, let me tidy up so that you can come on in. It, and, and this is a, a mindset that I think the best RPGs out there have, which is that they claim nothing. They, they, they acknowledge the past and the present as far as the sort of the cloud of data, but they don't claim it. They simply say, I've tidied up a little area here if you'd like to come and sit down and hang out for a minute. It's extremely um, absent of proclamation rather than proclamation like we're no longer doing plus two minus two penalties for difficult and easy we're doing advantage from now on and this is the way i have spoken <laughs> right so to me sweeping the steps is the exact opposite nothing is said it's a very quiet mentality that's inviting and that's open and that's passive and and lets you enter and by enter i mean come in with your project and with your agenda and your style so as far as examples of these three pylons, I've just sort of picked out a few that may not be the quintessential examples, but they definitely execute these, these goals on their own. First of all, trusting the hobbyist, I really think that Tiny Dungeon does this quite brilliantly. Tiny Dungeon uh, by Gallant Night Games, uh, Alan Barr, is a brilliant, brilliant little book, partially because it's very compact and it's very quick and easy to absorb and comprehend and, and bring into whatever it is you might be working on or might be playing. And it's also fun and bright. 
but it doesn't really beat you over the head with every little thing that you need or would want in your session. It's just got a very clean, simple, you could almost sort of say it's like lubricated in a way. It's just sort of, it just sort of with no heat or friction kind of just comes in, says hello, and then it's, it's sliding by on the highway of creativity. And it's wonderful. And it's a great book to go back to and read through. You can read through it in not that much time and, you know, reinvigorate the joy that is captured in that tight little book. It's a really good one. And that goes for, for the art, for the design, everything about it has this property of trusting you to make what's probably going to be a more complex game than what's written. But it doesn't say that explicitly or, or pound you over the head with what to do to add that complexity. It lets you be a hobbyist. Now, as far as igniting imagination, I really have to call out Burning Wheel on this. I think that that book is brilliant, especially with the sort of life path stuff for character creation. and so It really does get your head back into wanting to be at the table and wanting to talk in character, wanting to go out on quests, wanting to retrieve treasure, wanting to, to change your story as a character, wanting to join a team, wanting to be part of a town, you know, like there's something about it that is deep and detailed enough that you want to be in there. You, you, you crave to live in there. The furniture is inviting. And it almost, the burning wheel has almost the opposite approach of Tiny Dungeon. This is a, a very thick, long book with lots of information and detail in it. But very few books really just light me up as far as wanting to be and to create inside that world like Burning Wheel does. And the crazy thing about Burning Wheel too is in the beginning of the book, it says like, there's no specific world in this book. This is kind of, you know, you go do your own thing and make your own world. And this is more just about this kind of these pieces with characters and stuff. And I love that. Again, it has that sort of less of a proclamation and more of an invitation. I really like that. And then for the third pylon, for this sort of concept of sweeping the steps, I need to call out Dungeon World. Now, I, I know that Dungeon World has, is very polarizing, especially now that a few more years have, have passed. Um, you know, some people see it as a little bit silly or maybe it's too counterintuitive to ever really reach the table. And there's a lot of mixed reviews about it. But still, I think Dungeon World is wonderful in that it, it cleaned up a lot of messes and it invited me in. And the monsters in Dungeon World are especially like this. I mean, if you have seen these monsters, they basically have a hit point pool and like tag words. That's it. <laughs> and it's up to you to sort of decide what these tag words might mean. That they could be mechanical, that they could mean it has more than one action, that, that it's immune to different kinds of things. But it just trusts you with these tag words to take them and run in whatever way is going to work in your game. And I think it's brilliant. And it was still really an eye-opening and almost like life-changing experience for me to read Dungeon World because of that sweeping the steps feeling. It, it, it welcomed me into doing my own thing. And, and I absolutely love that. So if we're talking about these principles and we're talking about creating your own content, maybe to publish, maybe to play, and we're talking about dispelling this myth that stat blocks are so important. We're talking about trust too, trusting the hobbyist. These topics all combining into what? Well, that's exactly what we're here to talk about. We're talking about doing your own stats. This is a, a form of, of trust to your reader because I'm going to suggest that you don't do a ton of them actually less than even I've been doing. 
It also is a way of reinforcing these sort of three pylons or like guiding principles of, of publishing and of being a great GM, which are keeping things clean and igniting in the imagination rather than beating it over the head with detail. And, and all of this stuff sort of goes back to, in my mind, the dispelling of this myth of the stat block. You know, the stat block is this funny, it's become a bit of like an avatar in, in you know, especially in the Wizards of the Coast stuff where it's like, you're reading through lots of stat blocks and oh look, legendary actions and here's a free action, bonus action, and here's its stats and oh boy, I've got my stat block up for my monster, I'm ready to play. But I gotta say, you guys, I have realized looking at my own play patterns, I almost never have my book open on a stat block. I have a notes version of something in my journal that I might look at if I forget. But like so many other elements of Runehammer, I really believe that the sign of something that's really playable is that you can play it from recall quite accurately. And maybe because you have a lot going on, you need to look at your journal to get a reminder on how a mechanic works or if this thing has two actions or if it has 20 hit points or 10, right? But again, we're dispelling the, the, myth, the myth of the stat block. We're, we're looking for more trust between publisher and reader, between GM and player, right? And so I wanted to give you guys some examples of how this mindset, which, you know, feels good, right? I'm sure everybody's nodding a little bit as they're listening to this. And, oh, yeah, I like these concepts. These feel warm and fuzzy. But what, what are we doing again? So what I wanted to talk about is four examples of monsters that you're going to stat yourself. And, and this is where you're going to find the rubber hitting the road on dispelling the myth of the stat block, the, the sort of the religion that this stack block is, you know, made by the publisher. And so it must be, it must be honored. So that, that's what you're going to do on the one hand. But on the other hand, you're also going to trust either yourself as the audience or your reader as the audience. You're going to do less work and in doing less, trust the outcome. So let's go through a few. First of all, merfolk. Now you can look all over the world of RPGs and find merfolk. These are like fishy people, right? They're Kuatoa, they're Sahagwin, they're the, the, the deep ones, right? There's, there's merfolk in all kinds of form. It's basically a dude with a partial fish head, and he's got like a spear and a net, and he's got web flippers, and he walks around, and he usually lives in like a soggy town or in a, like a drippy cave, and he's pretty dim-witted and maybe can see in the dark and, you know, basically just wants to eat you. Doesn't even want to cook you. Just wants to stab you with a spear and fillet you and eat you. Now, that's just folk knowledge of these things. That's just ambient knowledge of what a merfolk could be. I don't have to write any of that stuff down because I know it in my head. I've been playing RPGs for years. I know what merfolk are about as far as their basic descriptive components, right? And so right away, all that stuff does not need to be written down. <laughs> and this is where we're going. This is the sweeping of the steps. You don't need to write down that merfolk are fishy people with a spear and a net. You just know that. And maybe every once in a while, one of them just has a net. One of them just has a spear. <laughs> okay, now you also know that these are like mookie enemies. They are not strong. So your stat block just says merfolk, one HP, weapon attack. Actually, I don't even know if you need to write down weapon attack. You know the dang thing has a spear. And because the system that you're playing in, be it 5e or be it Palladium or be it ICRPG, you probably have a good intuitive sense just from recall of what a spear does. As far as damage, how it might play, if it has extra reach, whatever. Your game is your game. 
Now, you only have one thing to write down about merfolk. One HP. <laughs> Even that is really easy to remember. Or you can write the word mook. Or sometimes I write a little, I do a mushroom with a happy face on it. And that means that somebody has one HP and they're really cheesy and easy to kill. But you see, the ambient folk knowledge of merfolk is everything you need. It pops right out on recall. And you don't need notes on these things. Okay, so that's the easy one. So now let's move to the second example, which is a red cap. Now, red caps are some of my all-time favorite monsters in 5th edition D&D. Because they have such a, a very, very clear mechanic. And so if you look at the stat block on a red cap, actually this mechanic can be a little bit lost in there, right? Because you have your paragraph and you have your bonus act and you have your stats. And, and like what to me is the essential element of the red cap is just a tiny bit lost. But basically these guys wear metal boots and when they chase you, they can kick you and knock you down. And what's the big deal about that? It, it becomes very hard to get away from them. <laughs> if you follow the rule like I do in some form that when you're falling down, on your next turn, you can take an action but can't move because your move is getting up, right? This is a classic prone rule, right? But even the word prone to me is clumsy. It's just falling down. You spend your next turn getting up, not being able to move, but you can still take an action. What this does is the, the red cap now can outrun you every single time. And actually, if there's a lot of them, they'll start catching up in numbers because they create this sticky effect of having you waste your move turn. And especially if there's a bunch of them, you're really going to have a hard time staying on your feet. And this makes such a sinister and annoying little gnomish enemy. Now, I might need some more details here. Hmm. Okay, well, let's give them 10 HP so they have one heart. So there's the kick you, knock you down and one heart. And they got like a hook, like a little hook thing, like a knife. Okay, well, you know, I... In my game, it's pretty easy to stat out a dagger. Okay, that's it. I've just designed my red cap. They kick you and knock you down as their main attack. They stab you when you're down, and they have one heart. <laughs> Everything else is now folk knowledge, right? And so my journal, once again, barely needs one line for an entire monster, and a relatively interesting monster, a slightly different monster. Okay, cool. So now let's keep going and let's try something far more challenging because those last two were easy. Let's try a Mind Flayer. Now, if you look into Mind Flayers, there are almost entire books dedicated to these stinkers. Like, there is so much over-information about a Mind Flayer. But here's what I would invite you to try. Think of your Mind Flayer, first of all, just as basically an evil, time-traveling person that can't talk. Okay, just put that in your head. This is just a person who's got evil intentions, like maybe dominating a city, and they can't speak, or if they do, it's in some strange set of sounds that barely anyone can understand. And go from there. You don't need to write any of that stuff down. Okay, so there's this sort of weird character that's sort of mute in a way. Ooh, okay, so now what do I know about mind flayers? Let's see. Well, they have the tentacles on the face, and they use magic. So let's do the tentacles on the face. So they, they do an attack that can sort of suck your brain out, eat your memories. Okay, great. So I'll just roll it like a normal attack and then, okay, eat your brain. And eating your brain maybe just is like drops you to zero HP. 
But really, you know, even in the moment, eat your brain could take a few different versions, a few different forms. I don't think getting your brain eaten is exactly the same every time. Sometimes you get your memory sucked out. Sometimes it kills you outright. Sometimes it's like gnawing on your brain. And so like you're losing stat points or losing memories or, or losing your personality, stuff like this. Actually, each case could be interesting. So I'm just going to write down, let's see, they have three hearts. Why not? They have 30 HP and they eat your brain with tentacle face. Really, eat your brain is plenty of notes there. So I have three hearts, eat your brain. Okay, nah, I think these guys need to be really powerful, so I'll give them three actions. I need to write that down. Three hearts, eat your brain, three actions. Actually, three has a nice ring to it. I'm going to do a plus three on every dice they roll. There we go. And then finally, uh, how about if I choose a random spell for them to cast on each turn? Uh, that means I'm going to have to go look up spells. Pfft, screw that. How about if I give them a magic missile? turn invisible, and like some kind of shockwave. Okay, now I have about four lines of notes that I need for my mind flare, and I'm going to stop right there. Everything else can either be made up in the moment or can be made up by an individual uh, hobbyist that's, that's your reader or by you even on like the day of your prep or as the, the battle is approaching. Maybe your players are approaching in a terribly fatigued state and you don't need to add anything to your mind flare. Maybe they're approaching in a terribly powerful state and you need to give him uh, three actions, but you know, 50 HP rather than 30. And so like you, you start to see where this mindset is headed. It's headed to the place that like these lengthy monster entries are becoming less and less useful. And that's what I want to be the thesis of this talk, demythifying stat blocks showing trust from your notes to yourself or from you to your reader or from the GM to the player. Okay, finally, let's talk dragon. You can easily fill two pages with the notes needed to run a dragon monster, right? Um, you, you get a very large full page on each dragon in the, in the standard monster manual, right? But I've found that that can be very clumsy to play. Like with your book open and you're trying to play this dragon as it's written, I say don't do that. I say build your dragon out of chunks. You can even make it six chunks. Each chunk has a capability, like the wings do buffet, the tail does a tail smash, the head does a chomp, the claws do a claw slash, and the heart casts a spell, something like this. All you need then is to write down a mechanic on each chunk. Each chunk, give, give each tongue 10 hit points, I don't know, whatever, sure. And then roll a 1d6 on every turn for your dragon. And since dragons are fast and amazing, do it twice. They have two actions, which is roll a d6. So if you roll, you know, say the number one on your d6 is the tail, you roll two ones on the dragon's turn, he does a double tail swipe. Bang, you're done. If the fighter says, I'm going to attack that stinking tail, it's crushing us. He rolls a nat 20, jumps up, whoosh, gets a ton of damage, lops off the tail. The tail is no longer a viable roll. So this is going to ask you for your designing your dragon to do six lines of data, right? Corresponding to the sides of a six-sided die. And you want a, a gargantuan dragon, you could do eight. Or you could give it three actions. Or you could give it 20 hit points per chunk, right? But either way, what you're doing is letting your reader, or you in a certain way, but really letting your reader 
fill in that whole page that normally occupies as sort of a stat block with their folk knowledge of dragons. Like everyone can describe their dragon quite easily. Everyone knows the mythos of dragons and how they sort of have this regal attitude and how they can be sort of feral suddenly and how they look down on other beings, how they breathe fire, how they eat people, how they smash things with their tail, how they fly overhead and the wind is destructive. Like everybody just has intuitive knowledge of dragons. And I say, let that intuitive knowledge be part of the way you communicate with other hobbyists. That's the trust right there. So let's say that we adopt this method, which I bet a lot of you already do in some form in your journal. And, and where is this going? It's an acknowledgement that books can be very general in our hobby, but your game is specific. And I say, take that a step further, which is let the book only be a skeleton or a lead or a jump off for what's going to be your game, the specifics. And then we finally come to like where this has hit the rub, hit the road for me, which is in altered state. We went to do our enemy listings, right? Like, you know, almost all good, um, you know, RPG publications have stuff to help you capture the magic of the monsters or the enemies in that publication, right? And so we're thinking, okay, here we go. We're going to do one page per monster, just like in the core. And here we're going down this road. And I was thinking to myself. This seems outdated. I mean, I'm looking at my own habits. I do not keep my book open to a monster entry and play it out of the book. I just don't have that habit. I play off of a note or two. So we said, why not make a more usable, playable monster listing? And we wound up doing it like how we did the guns. For So for those of you who have looked at the Altered State Quick Start document, those two gun pages are the pages that I basically am staring at through most of the session if I'm looking at rules because each has an extremely brief rule variant on it. And you have the art right next to it, so it's putting you in the world a little bit. So we took the approach, what the hell? Let's do the monsters that way. There's four monsters on a page, each one with a little three-line listing of what makes it what it is. The rest is accomplished by the art and accomplished by the ambient knowledge or the overall setting mood knowledge of the reader. And they're going to form it into whatever they need it to be. What's important is that we provide this differentiation in an extremely small, tight, playable format. It's almost emulating the format that winds up in your journal. Rather than giving you this big long form and then assuming, well, I hope the, you know, the GM kind of bulletizes or note, you know, makes notes out of this long form monster entry, because who wants to look at a bunch of texts searching for a mechanic, you know, like just, I find myself not doing that. I find myself wanting a more usable monster listing that just seems more practical. And the only reason I have the privilege of saying something is more practical than something else is because the awesome amount of playing and play testing that has gone into the game in the past three, four years and all the input from you guys and other players. And so in altered state and by extension in uh, index card RPG third edition, you're going to see this much more cloud oriented method of listing monsters. It's way more practical. It's much more playable and it just keeps things far more loose. And it also asks less of the book. The book has less duty to tell you what the important monsters are. Here are all the cool monsters in perfect detail for you to do as you're being told. No, 
Instead, here are monsters sort of more by archetype or by mechanical archetype, and you can make your undead into whatever your scenario may be. Like one of my uh, the entries that I liked a little more in Core 2E was the swarm. The swarm doesn't really care what kind of swarm it is. Rats or bats or evil birds or tiny monkeys, rabid tiny vampire monkeys. <laughs> it doesn't really worry about that. What it worries about is giving you a distinct and differentiated swarm mechanic. You're the one running your game. You're the one running the specifics. This is more about the general. It's more about the category and it trusts you with the specifics. That to me is this sort of thesis that brings all this jibber jabber together is that that tighter, shorter, more practical form of mechanical monster listing trusts you, the GM or the reader, to fit the specifics into your game. Now, this is a very different mindset than something like the adventure paths in Pathfinder, right? Those things are thought out top to bottom. Your job is almost clerical in nature. But this creative mindset says, no, the game master already probably has a whole bunch of stuff going on in their game that sets tone and, and differentiates it from other games and, and is theirs, uniquely theirs. And what they're looking for is the next thing to fit into theirs. Not the other way around. We're going to fit our group into this material. No, I know that that happens out there, but that is not my mission as a creator and as a publisher. Mine is to enable that DIY GM who already has a world and is looking for that next tight mechanical differentiation to surprise players the following week. So I guess if I had a thesis on this somewhat chaotic podcast, it would be to own your own stats. Just as much as you do your own themes, your own maps, and the own, your own events in your campaign, you... As a DIY GM, you don't look to published material for those things. That's part of your table's game. And I would argue that the same can be said of the more detailed statistical and descriptive elements of monsters. And that's that trust. The trust is that you don't need all of this detail in a stat block to get a differentiated, cool enemy or even concept or NPC. You're trusting the hobbyist. And now this is speaking as a publisher, right? So if I assume that this is true, I assume that you guys are going to take my advantage. You're going to own your own stats. You're going to own your own descriptive detail. You're going to customize whatever it is you're reading and finding into your game. You're not playing things dry right out of the book. That's not you. If I assume that, it gives me a new mindset in how I need to notate my monsters, which is much tighter, much shorter, and much more something to be read on the fly during play rather than read ahead of time and make notes. So the thesis is own your own stats as much as you do everything else in your game. And I'm going to assume that my readers are going to take that thesis. And that's the thrust of this podcast. I'm going to do that. I've made that decision. And you're going to see it when Altered State comes out. You're going to see how these enemies have this insanely tight stat listing system that really just leaves it up to you. What it just notates is here's the differentiating piece. Here's a little piece so that your players have a new challenge that's a tiny little mechanical difference. All this other cool stuff is probably going to be made up by you to fit your game, your moment, your story, your dialogue 
how things are unfolding in your game. And so it's hard to give this podcast a really clean title because it's a bit of a stormy concept, right? You've got demythifying stat blocks. You've got trusting in, in, in the way that the publisher trusts the reader to make their own material. But you also have trusting you as the designer, trusting yourself as the at-table game master. So you're trusting yourself by doing shorter notations. And then finally, we also have this idea that I kind of moved past, which is the trust between player and GM, which lets the GM do far less prep. Because when that trust is there, just like with the fall, the trust fall exercise, the players will catch the GM when he or she reaches sort of the end of their prep and needs to kind of go out on a limb a little bit. The players are going to lift them up and help. So I don't have like one really snazzy, catchy title for this, but I know that all these concepts are intertwined into this notion that the final details that happen on the table are the exclusive property of the DIY GM. And there's no need for a book or notes or even your journal notes to override that or to try to document that or write that down. In the moment, if I asked you, what is a red cap? And I need you to describe it. I kind of want to hear what just comes out of your head at that moment. What maybe is a lack of knowledge and then what also might be knowledge and the combination that makes your description unique. That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear that you memorize the stat block from the book. (laughs) Now that is a specific taste, but that is the taste of Runehammer. That is the style that we do around here. And, And so I know that this concept is a bit tangled, But I hope you've all come with me on this journey to see really how little you truly need when you're preparing your monster and what you need is differentiation. That you need to catch that magic piece of the monster, not like, okay, here's another monster with all six stats and they're barely different from the last one and so on and so forth. No, 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 no. You know, a great example maybe of one of these monsters is the invulnerables from Doom Vault. They are a simply unharmable entity. That's it. it. It makes them extremely short in their notations, but extremely differentiated from any other monster. Now, what's silly as I look back is that I gave that monster an entire page. So I continued to talk about it. And I think what I do is I dilute my thesis by hiding it in all that text. And so going forward in the future, I'm going to want to clean things up vastly so that the thesis of differentiation on each monster is delivered much harder and allows much more in the moment, at table, innovation, and improvisation. You guys, I hope that whole thing made sense. I'm just trying to talk through it and get my heart down on the page. This has been uh, Runehammer. RPG Mainframe, episode 57. This is old Hank from Fernail here, your old buddy. Just trying to work through what started as a very simple concept and became a much larger one. And I'm excited for everybody to see how it's actually being implemented in Altered State. That's where you're really going to see the connection between this podcast and where Altered State is going. And by most important extension, where third edition Index Card RPG is going. And that's what I'm so excited about because that project is huge and is going to take all year most likely because... You guys have sounded off that you wanted to have all new art and to have a a new innovative feel to it and everything. And so always putting the deepest of thought into third edition because so far the standard set as far as you guys' enthusiasm about second edition is so high. 
third edition just needs to slay it. So this is a preview of some of the thinking that's in store there. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. It's old Hanker and Fernail signing off. It's great to be back hollering at this microphone and hollering at all you wonderful three-thumb weirdos out there. Thank you to all of you guys for hanging on in Patreon. And uh, keep an eye for Mo on the way. And hey, Happy New Year, everybody. Let's get out there and make this world just a little bit more better than we found it. Love your neighbor and just bring a little bit of peace into the world, all right? Help me out on that mission. And I'll see you guys on the old internet. I'm out.